athletics and sports and sports teams, um, and as you and I talked previously, are kind of a microcosm of, of the larger life that we lead. Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and being an athlete and a former athlete and meditation and how all of this relates to living well. This is Billy Hansen. In the book Zen and the Art of Archery, uh, German philosophy professor Eugen Harigel, I think it's pronounced, taught in Japan in the 1920s. And during his time in Japan, him and his wife were interested in studying and practicing Zen. And when they approached a Zen community in Japan, they were told to first pick up a preliminary practice. So rather than jumping right into the formal sitting and Zen practice, they were told to pick up a, a preliminary practice, which can often, apparently can often be an on-ramp into Zen. And so Yugen chose, uh, chose Kaiudo, which is the Japanese art of archery. And his wife chose the art of flower arrangement. And so he describes his journey in the book, and it's really a fascinating story. It's worth reading if you're interested. What he quickly learned when he started working with the Zen master was that his practice had very little to do with actually hitting a target with the bow and arrow. For the first uh, however long, year or two, he wasn't actually shooting at a target. It was just a bale of hay. And the whole practice was so that he could, and initially was just learning how to draw the bow quote-unquote spiritually and the master had a way of effortlessly drawing the bow back without any quivering or any resistance and it, and it was almost like the bow uh, drew back itself in some ways and you can really struggle with this and typical of zen teaching the the zen master let him struggle and rather than trying to fix like you know in the West, we're, we're accustomed to working with a teacher who will, will see the problems that you're dealing with. Like, let's say you have a hitch in your jump shot, and the shooting coach will immediately tell you, okay, well, you got to bend your knees this way, or pull your elbow in, or it's it's immediately trying to fix. But the, the Zen master just simply kind of just watched him struggle for over a year. And understandably, this was, you know, his, his journey into Zen was, was fraught with all kinds of self-doubt and doubt about the practice and worry that he was wasting all of this time but slowly over time he started to make progress he was finally able to draw the bow back effortlessly effortless effortlessly jesus christ but then the next step which apparently is even a harder step was to release the bow with the correct timing without your your uh, front hand quivering and so again he went deep into frustration and thought about giving up and there's this famous scene in the book when the Zen master and the student are meeting in the evening, late at night, to talk about it. And the student confesses his own frustrations. And the Zen master uh, takes the student into the archery hall and, with in total darkness, couldn't see anything, approaches the, the line with his bow and arrow, and he fires off two shots. And what he describes in the book was that the first shot and the second hot shot had very different sounds. And so when they approached the, the target and they illuminated the target, they found that the, the first arrow had been a perfect bullseye and that the second arrow had split the first arrow. And this really shook the student and baffled him, but also proved that there was something to this, this Zen and the art of archery. So he kept going and he finally was able to, to release it. And he, he described the kind of euphoria of being able to release it correctly and uh, how his own life was improving through this, this practice. And something that really stuck out to me about the book was the, the, the Zen master's emphasis on the attitude towards shooting and about not allowing yourself to get frustrated or impatient and equally importantly, to not become proud over when things go right, when, you know, when things are really working. So after in, in another scene in the book, the student is having a great day. First three or four shots are beautifully flung at the target with perfect form and perfect breathing. And the, the, the master can sense that the student is becoming proud of himself. And he said this to the student, you already know that you should not grieve over bad shots. Learn now not to rejoice over the good ones. You must free yourself from the buffetings of pleasure and pain and learn to rise above them. 
rise above them in easy equanimity, to rejoice as though not you but another had shot well. This too you must practice unceasingly. You cannot conceive how important it is. So this just struck me as um, something that in sports and in athletics or in career development or in whatever goals we're pursuing here in America, we often focus on the negative states of mind and how to fix them. And we try to replace them with positive states. But I think what, what often gets lost and what often got lost for me growing up was that um, anxiety, depression, self-doubt is on one side of the spectrum and that pride and self-aggrandizement and feeling you know too good about what you're doing is actually like the other side of the same coin and that if you are if you allow yourself to get too uh, if your head gets too big about what you're doing then you're risking falling into those other negative states and I really loved how this book emphasized those two things about how um, you want to avoid those two mind states as much as you can so today's interview is with Renee Perkle Renee is a psychologist and human performance specialist her bio is really impressive and interesting, and we, we go into it on in the podcast today, so I'll let her tell you. But we focus on the work that she does with athletes. She works with collegiate and professional teams and athletes. She works with teams in the Pac-12 basketball teams and NBA teams, and so it was really an honor to get her on the podcast. In the podcast today, we speak about Renee's background, her philosophy on team building, anxiety and insecurity disguised as ego or pride, which relates to the intro here. We talk about team building assessments and practices and the kind of things that she implements when she works with a team. We talk about our shared passion and interest in meditation and mindfulness. We talk about anxiety and imposter syndrome in athletics. Uh, We talk about finding flow and the importance of having fun and she really emphasizes this, having fun in a, in a kind of cool and nuanced way, and other topics. If you like the podcast, you might like my newsletter, Sunday Sauce, which uh, deals with similar topics to what I'm exploring here on the podcast. And you can subscribe to that at billyhanson.net forward slash sauce. And you can also help me out by giving a review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's get to the podcast. Here is Renee Perkle. All right, I'm here with Renee Perkle. Renee, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, I think let's start with your uh, a bit about your bio. If you could just take me through a bit about your own athletic career growing up and then how you made your way into this space, that would be great. Okay. Um, I started off as a figure skater. I started skating when I was three and... Um, Loved the sport. Always dreamed of being an Olympic figure skater. And mm. then somehow in middle school, my parents got tickets to the then uh, Portland Timbers, which is one of the first major soccer teams. I mean, this was back in the in the 70s. Mm. And I fell in love with the sport of soccer and started playing. And it was still a relatively new sport. Um, and that was the sport that I stuck with through high school and college and beyond. I, uh, I played soccer up until I was in my late 30s and ruptured my Achilles. Oh, wow. And where did you play in college? Portland State. Oh, wow. Okay. And then you, after Portland State, you were playing recreationally until your injury? Yeah, recreationally um, and on some elite women's teams here in Portland. So, yeah. Cool. I, time. I, also, I coached the sport for over 25 years. Okay. Nice. And then um, we spoke briefly on the phone before the conversation. You originally, I think you said you studied business and literature. Is that right? Yeah. um, My undergraduate degrees are in business and literature. And I was actually um, a corporate banker for 12 years before I returned to graduate school and had a strong interest in psychology and social sciences and Decided to take just some graduate level courses and absolutely fell in love and decided to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. In the process of getting my degree, I was in a, uh, a clinical program, so we started working with clients very, very early on. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get to do uh, two years of pre-internship 
pre, uh, my internship and my residency in the VA system, the Veterans Administration system. And so I got to see firsthand um, a range of mental health issues, um, but also was introduced to performance psychology in sort of recovery, what I refer to as recovery psychology, which is, you know, overcoming and returning from injuries. Hmm. Okay, nice. And um, so after you, you did your PhD, you have now started your own um, business, right? Working with various organizations, but you also, you, I want to focus this conversation specifically on how you, the, the work you do with athletes. So how did you, um, what inspired you to pursue working with athletes? How did that come about? Well, I was actually really fortunate. Um, I've all, as you can tell from my background, I've always had a love of sports. Um, yeah. and I think that athletes, Athletics and sports and sports teams, um, and as you and I talked previously, are kind of a microcosm of, of the larger life that we lead. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had expressed an interest. Um, when I came out of the VA system, I had also worked with a number of women veterans, which led me to working with eating disorders, uh-huh. uh, which then led me to working with um, a small number of elite women runners. Hmm. which led me to working with some other runners, which then led to working um, with some Nike-sponsored athletes, which through a connection I made there then led to me working with um, some elite high school um, and collegiate athletes, which then led to me working with the Blazers, which then led to the Thorns and the Timbers, which then led to some collegiate (laughs) I, I wish I could say that I had this really clear plan. Yeah. Just been really fortunate to say yes to some really great opportunities. And one thing's led to another. And I, I think, like so many things, when you engage in something that you feel really passionate about and you're committed to doing your best by that passion, there, it, it sometimes has a way of taking care of itself. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, in order to... Um be granted all those opportunities, you must have been making quite an impact along the way. So I'm excited to dive into all this stuff and the kind of work that you do. But quick question, just because I'm curious, did your, when you made that career shift and you decided to go back to school, was that, um, did that take a little bit of pushing from behind of yourself? Did, was that scary in any way? Did, did you, were you deliberating? Because I know there are quite a few people who are in my circle and even myself included, you know, we, you are on this kind of path where you're secure and then but you've got these other aspirations so how did that transition come about um it was a terrifying transition um i had a small child um but i was you know i was engaged in a career that just was not well suited for me um it just Mm. didn't move my heart um i wasn't loving going to work every day and i just knew that it wasn't the right thing for me and so I just, I made a decision and I started applying to graduate programs. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. I wanted to stay locally because I had family support, um, given that I had a young child. Um, got, into, got into two programs um, and felt very, very fortunate to do that. But I, I, I actually was terrified to make the shift, um, but I felt like I had to do it. And it's one of those things you know, people talk about they want to start a pro, they want to do something part time, or they want to move in something, or they want to ease into something. And I think that's a really hard way to do things. Sometimes you just have to take that leap and start flapping your wings. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah, well, it obviously paid off for you. That's really inspiring that you did that. Um, so and then, how would you describe what you're up to now? I know you've been on all kinds of paths in this space, but what primarily, what kind, what kind of work do you primarily do now, or who are you working with primarily? Um, primarily now I'm working with, uh, division one sports teams, uh, collegiate sports teams and some professional teams. And then I also have some individual athletes that I work with. Um, the individual athletes are people that I've been working with for a while. Mm-hmm. Most recently I've started moving into team development, which mm-hmm. to me is becoming a huge passion because whether we're an individual athlete, you know, I think about track and field so many individual sports, but there's also a team component to it. Um, When we talk about the majority of other sports, whether it's 
you know, football, basketball, soccer, baseball, softball, um, rowing, they're, they're sports where it takes a group of people working together and working together well to optimize function and success. Yeah. And, and, and I see that as not just on the athletic field, but also with professional organizations that I work with, leadership teams, things like that. Um, you know, you can take a, a group of very talented people and put them together. And even if they're not a really cohesive team, they might do okay because they just have raw talent. Yeah. But when you can get them working together and functioning as a team, what they can accomplish is mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, you get some of that uh, synergy effect going when, I guess, the, the snowball effect going in the right direction. And yeah, I mean, I've, as an athlete, I've I've been on both ends of the spectrum in that where you're playing for a team that's clicking and you all support each other and you love each other and there's a bunch of trust and everyone's kind of paddling in the same direction. And then I've been on the opposite end where you've got some players who are into it, other players who are almost cancerous and trying to like tear the team apart. And it's certainly more fun to be on the former culture. Um, and it's also easy to, I think it's easier to perform better too, uh, when you're, when you're swimming with the current instead of against it. So what's, what's, what's your philosophy on team building? I understand that's kind of a broad question, but so what kind of things do you try to help with and what strategies do you use when you first work with a team? Um, in order to, well, maybe let, let me drill down a little bit and make the question a bit more specific. So, um, how do you first kind of get a feel for where a team's at when you start to work with them? Um, when I first start to work with a team, oftentimes I will do um, a pretty formal assessment. There are a few tools out there that um, are useful in terms of evaluating a team's cohesion, how well a team works together, how mm. much they respect each other, how much trust there is. And you know, you use the words trust and fun. Mm. And what I have found in my work is that there are a couple of things that are key to a strong team. First and foremost is that there has to be trust. And it's not trust that people are going to show up on time or trust that people are going to do what they say they're going to do. That's important. But it's the kind of trust that says we can have conflict, we can disagree, and we can work through it. Hmm. You know, it's the kind of trust where people can have hard conversations. It's the kind of trust, you know, people would call it vulnerability-based trust. Hmm. There's a there's a safety among the team that says people can be genuine. Hmm. The other piece that's that's really critical and you use the word fun is that teams that work well together have fun and yeah. you can see it. You know, I, I think about um, some current NBA teams and um, you know one team that had things not hit with COVID and things been locked down. You know, we had the Milwaukee Bucks that were on fire this year. Yeah. And what was really fun to watch with them is what happened behind the scenes. Hmm. Um, and there's there's some great YouTube on the games these guys played. And, you know, they played WWE and they had SmackDowns and when they were, <laughs> you know, for games and stuff. And it was just hilarious. Hmm. You know, and there was a chemistry, there was a camaraderie, there was a trust that people could be goofy and serious. There was a trust that people would, would work hard and show up, but they could also play together. And that's one of the things I think about with sports is, you know, we use the word, we play sports. And I think the word play is imperative. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about how trust and chemistry isn't, um, cause there's a difference between genuine trust and chemistry and then walking on eggshells and pretending like everything's okay and not, you know, kind of sweeping resentment under the rug. And I've certainly been a part and even contributed to that on teams too. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a really great point. And, um, yeah, I, th I think you can even see it while you're watching, like you point out the Bucks, like the stuff that they did in the, I remember seeing some of those clips of what they did pregame in the tunnel, some of those little games that they played. And I thought that was really beautiful to see. Um, that's really great. So what, um, 
quickly, what, what was what does the formal assessment look like? Is that a written uh, assessment that goes out to all of the players and coaches? How do you uh, assess that? Yeah, it's um, I use a computer a computer based system. Um, everybody gets a link and it it asks them a lot of questions. And so what I'm looking at is, you know, what's the basic structure of each individual? How do they function in the world? How do they think about their teammates? How what's their level of trust within their team? Um, what you know, there's a number of questions people go through, and it's 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 an adaptive testing process. So based on how people answer, there's more questions or fewer questions, so that we can really drill down into what's happening. Mm. And I generally produce a formal assessment that I go over with uh, you know coaching staff and then with the team, so that we can create a plan for how we're going to develop cohesion and unity and trust within a team. Nice, nice. And what are some, so when you start to implement these, the, the, the guidance that you give or the changes that you try to initiate with the team in, in a positive way, what does that look like once you've done the assessment and you start to actually work with a team? What kind of things do you do with them? Um, a lot of what I do initially is, is education. Hmm. I, I, I will sit down and, and, talk about the team's structure and how people are working together, you know, where there are areas that need growth and development. Um, because when I think of a team, I think of a group of people that work together to accomplish something. Um, but, but a team is, is smaller and larger at different times. So when I think about, and since we're talking about the NBA, let's think about that. We've got five guys per team on the court at one time. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I'll start to think about who's working together most often, you know, who's subbing in for who, who what, are, who are the, the micro teams within the macro team mm-hmm. and begin to try and create cohesion in those micro teams, because when there's cohesion within the smaller group, that tends to carry over into the larger group. Hmm. Okay. And do you, you've worked with both college and NBA teams. Have you noticed any difference between team dynamics a lot of what you hear and from the books i've read and interviews i've listened to from people who have been in the nba that because especially in in basketball when there's only you know 12 to 14 guys on the team i think something like that um and the top players are being paid so much and they have so much leverage even more so than the coach at times is that a sticky process that you've noticed in the nba as compared to college or do you think that dynamic has been over-exaggerated? What, what's your, um, do you have a different strategy for working with the NBA and with college? Now, you know, I approach both pretty much the same. Hmm. Um, and one of the biggest issues that, that I run into, honestly, whether it's at the collegiate level or at the professional level, mm-hmm. is, well, it's twofold. One is ego. Yeah. Um, but ego very often isn't about someone who's really cocky. It's about somebody that has high anxiety or is more insecure. Right, right. And that ego becomes a compensation. And so whether I'm talking about you know, an athlete that's making millions of dollars or somebody who is you know, on a scholarship for their, for their activity, it's creating enough cohesion, enough trust, enough connection within the team that people's egos become less of an issue. Nice. And you said one example that we pointed out when you talk on the phone was about uh, you were working with a team who had a talented new class of players coming in. This is now at the college level. And I thought this was an interesting dynamic to, to work through. You've got returning players who have kind of established their roles they've carved out their lanes within the team and then you've got a new um a new class of incoming recruits who are talented and who are apt to play and compete with the returners and this strikes me as an especially kind of fragile situation with chemistry where you could easily get kind of a fractured team in that the returners are already friends and they have their territory and they might um you know draw a line in the sand between them and the new recruits and then the recruits are coming in and they're probably making friends with each other maybe they're in the dorms together 
Uh, so what, how would you approach a situation like that? Um, what kind of exercises or um, education would you give to the team to address this kind of problem? Um, those are the kind of situations that I really, I love to work in um, mm-hmm. because it's be a lot of fun. And I do use a lot of fun approaches. Um, one of the teams that this happened with in this last year, you know, it's, it's creating things that are competitive, but not connected directly to their sport and breaking the groups down so that they are cross-matched mm. and creating competitive groups within the groups. Um, so one of the things that we did was we did a team Olympics, you know, mixed everybody together. So they're competing, they're learning about each other's competitive drive. They're learning about each other's problem solving. They're learning about each other's grit, their, you know, their toughness, their resiliency through competitive means, but not competing at their sport with each other yet. Hmm. And so it's a way for them to, you know, to develop a connection, to get to see who each other is. And then over the time, we start to move more into the, the sport at hand. But again, focusing on the fact that a team is a group of people working together. And if the goal of the team is that the team is winning both, you know, in the regular season, in postseason, mm-hmm. then what is the dynamic that we need to create to make that happen? Mm. And if if the most effective team is being built, then everybody's going to win. Mm. Nice. And what what I love the idea of competitive, so it gets people focused and going, but outside of the primary sport, so it's there's no implication of you know playing time, and maybe the egos can dampen a bit. What kind of games do you play in those Olympics? Um, it can be a range of things from, I mean, seriously goofy stuff like, you know, ring tosses and egg carries and, you know, oh, egg nice. carry relays, um, you know, swimming competitions, you know, a lot of relay kinds of things or things where they have to work together as a group within their sub team, mm-hmm. but that their actual sport. And that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. And then, um, is there in a, actually, before I get to that question, do you, what what kind of time frame do you generally have with this team? This might vary from team to team, but let's say you're being hired to work with a, a college team. Is it is it a workshop? Is it a weekend? Are you there for um, what what is the practical timeline that you generally have with the team? And what do you think? How long does it take generally to actually start seeing progress when you work with teams? Um, in an ideal world, um, I am brought in at the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as so say at a collegiate level, as soon as the team is returning and generally before the team is returning to school, hopefully I've had some time to workshop with the coaching staff. Yeah. Um, and then I usually, I mean, the minimum that I will contract to work with a team is for three months hmm. because it takes, you know, it's not like you can sit down and in one setting say, okay, here's what we know about you. Here's where you need to work on things. Go get them. Yeah. It's really about creating a trust with me that I understand the team and have the, be- the team's best interest at heart. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am an outsider coming in. Um, and then the next phase of it is beginning to bring people together and creating what I think of as building blocks. So one of the things that I always want to do with the team is help people develop their resilience, mm. both as individuals and as a unified group. And so that resilience is beginning to use, you know, some individual basic skills like mindfulness. And, you know, I teach people a lot about breathing, how to use their breath to manage their brain, manage their amygdala so that they're able to stay calm. And, you know, that makes a difference both in their play, but it also makes a difference in how they're interacting with their teammates. Hmm. So, you know, we're taking we're taking some big information about the team as a whole. Then we kind of bring it back to how do we create a little bit more resiliency and a little bit more self-trust within each individual so that when that self-trust is developed, then they can begin to trust others more because they know that they're going to be okay. And then, you know, we build on layer after layer after layer. Nice. Nice. And yeah, that's, I did yeah, I didn't know you were into mindfulness specifically. So are you having the players and or coaches learn how to practice basic mindfulness meditation? Is that a core part of your 
uh, training philosophy with the team? Absolutely, um, and that's where my ideal is that if I if I'm going to be with the team, that I will be with them for a full you know, for a full year or a full you know coming in in a full season. Yeah, because you know my belief is that what we're working on, we can talk about all day long. It's the practice that mm-hmm. makes it. A, and absolutely, you know, some of the grounding practices are mindfulness meditation, learning mm-hmm. about breath, learning how to control your breath. You know, is it, are we breathing to try and relax and calm the amygdala? Are we breathing so that we are energizing ourselves? Mm. Are we breathing to get focused? And, you know, there's lots of different types of breath work that can be used. Yeah. From, you know, then I start to talk about self-talk. How, how does the individual athlete talk about themselves? How do they talk about their team? Mm. How do we shift towards more positive self-talk of the individual athlete, and then how do we create, what are our, you know, what are our team values? How do we name those team values, and how do we begin to talk about those team values so that they become a part of who we are versus just words that are being said? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, that was actually what ultimately ended up helping me as a player was learning a little bit of a different strategy to relate to some of my issues on the court and off the court was I was very caught up in the kind of traditional athletic attitude of gritting my teeth and pushing through and pretending I'm fine, telling myself I'm going to be fine, but really just trying to push whatever anxiety and self-doubt away that I had. And then it wasn't until I saw a sports psychologist who taught me how to take just a whole different approach to it, where rather than pushing your anxiety away, you pay attention to it and let it kind of wash over you. And like you said, focus on your breathing, which I've since learned has direct, you know, implications for brain chemistry and how your body responds. And and so finding that was huge for me. But I also know that as you're saying, you know, it's not like the mind, learning how to use basic mindfulness and learning how to meditate does take some time and it definitely compounds on itself once you practice start practicing consistently then you start to really see the benefits over time so it's not something that you can just teach in a weekend so that's really cool does um the reason why i'm asking these these kind of practical questions is i was i'm interested in how because i i was a coach a graduate assistant for two years after i played and i noticed how there's just an endless amount of stuff that we that that to to do on the basketball court for strategy to implement film to watch you know weight lifting making sure everyone's passing their classes and i'm a firm believer in the stuff that you teach and i think it's you'd be a huge advantage if you're implementing some of the stuff that you're implementing into your team but i also think that for many coaches who even might believe in this stuff or are interested in this stuff it's an easy thing to kind of forget about or lose track of when you've got ball screen coverages to work on or whatever sport you're, you're, you're coaching. There's plenty of things to work on in the, in just the sport specific aspect. So what, what does it look like? So and ideally, if you're working for a team for a year, are you working with them on a daily basis? And when do you actually, um, work with them? Is it before practice, after practice? And it might vary between team to team. I'm sure it does, but in an ideal situation, how much are you working with the team every week and what is the schedule like? Um, so most often, and again, it, it depends on the team and whether I'm traveling or whether I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a more local team. Yeah. Um, traveling, it's usually every other week. And oftentimes, like at the collegiate level, they'll have a, a team, they'll have a, a day where they do other sorts of activities versus physical practice. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, we use that as, as team development day or, you know, team development period and go in, we'll do some, you know, an education piece, oftentimes do a formal presentation that engages the, the team in some back and forth dialogue. There's oftentimes some practice that we'll do, you know, I'll walk them through a meditation. Mm. Um, I also have teams do visualization together. Mm. Um, so I will lead teams through various types of visualization, whether it's for relaxation, whether it's for, um, you know, 
being ready for competition, whether it's for calm, whether it's for sleep, but we'll, you know, and even gratitude. I'll walk teams through a, a range of visualizations and I'll have the teams do it together. And you know, as you know, and as an athlete yourself, there's a chemistry, there's, there's an energy that gets shared when a team spends time together. Yeah. That energy gets shared equally, if not even more sometimes when the team is meditating together and doing mindfulness activities together. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and taking teams through a visualization or through a meditation. And then I'll record those specific to different teams um, that I give to the coaches for them to use, say at the start of a practice or oftentimes at the end of a practice. Hmm. Um, there'll be one they'll have you know coaches use before the start of a game. You know, what I'm going to do at the end of a practice to sort of get people to integrate what they've learned in that practice or, you know, worked on in that practice versus, you know, something for team cohesion that I might do before a game. Nice, nice. Yeah, it, it is a it's surprisingly intimate activity, actually, to sit in silence with other people in my time on meditation retreats. You know, you go 10 days without speaking to anyone but the people you're sitting next to, especially, I remember, you know, you get to talk to everyone after it's over. I feel like I've made great friendships just by, by sitting and struggling with them through it. And so, yeah, I, I love what you said about the energy that can build when a team sits in silence together. Some of the work I've done with teams, too, I've noticed that, too. It's a really beautiful, intimate thing. Um, do you have your own meditation practice? I do. Um, I meditate daily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are lots of people that believe that meditation needs to be a very extensive, you know, practice. And if, if, if my life would allow it, I would love to have, you know, an hour and a half a day to meditate. Yeah. Um, but I just can't give up that much sleep and get everything done. Yeah. That I need. So yeah. I, I, have, I have a practice of twice a day for 15 minutes. Well, that's uh yeah, that that's more than what most people can manage. That's for sure. In our busy world. So yeah. I also yeah. try to incorporate, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No. Um, try and incorporate just some really basic breath work huh. several times a day for just a couple of minutes and that's one of the things I really work with athletes on is if nothing else if you get anxious meditating if that's something that you're struggling with then let's then let's back up and let's start with some basic breath work and I teach a very specific breath that I want people to use and I ask them to, to take five of those breaths three to four times a day mm. It takes just a couple of minutes. Um, they can set a reminder on their phone. They can do it while they're sitting in class. They can do it while they're driving a car. You know, they can do it when they're, you know, pretty much anywhere. And it just begins to help them develop the practice of seeing what they can do and how they can shift their own mental state and their own physical state in a couple of minutes with five breaths. Would you mind describing those breaths? Absolutely. Um, I recommend a 15 count breath just because it's easy to count. Mm. Um, but it's it's an inhale through your nose of five, mm. count of five, holding for two, and then an exhale for eight. Mm. So it's a total count of 15, always with the exhale longer than the inhale. Mm. And what it does is it fully reoxygenates the body and then it signals to the amygdala, um, and I've said that word a few times, so I refer to the amygdala as Amy, the crazy person that lives in my brain. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I say that because the amygdala controls all of the sensory input into our brains. Mm -hmm. um, but the amygdala can't differentiate what's real versus what we perceive or imagine. Mm. And so the first thing that happens when we get anxious or when we get even even just a little bit off is for most people, we start to shallow breathe and we hold our breath, you know, in the upper part of our chest and our throat. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sitting with people all the time. You know, people literally are taking just enough breath to stay upright. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it signals to the amygdala that we're under stress. Stress means we've got to become reactive and, we, and we're going to err on the side of self-preservation, which means we're going to shut down our whole brain and we're going to kick everything back to our limbic system, which is about survival. It's about fight or flight. Hmm. Um, and I think we see culture, people as a whole, walking around in fight or flight most of the time. Hmm. That's why we have road rage. I think that's why people get so short with each other in lines at the grocery store. Hmm. You know, it's 
It'll snap at the gas station attendant that isn't, you know, responding quickly enough. I mean, people are just on edge. Yeah. And this is a breath that by full reoxygenation, we're getting some of the toxins out of our system, but we're also signaling to the amygdala that we're safe. Hmm. And when the amygdala says you're safe, then it opens up where the sensory information goes in our brain and our frontal lobe comes online. And our frontal lobe is where we have executive functioning and planning and empathy and compassion. Those all live in our frontal lobe. Hmm. And so when we can calm the amygdala down, even just temporarily, every time that we do that, we're practicing with our brain in terms of if, if we think of our brain as a muscle, yeah. we're training that, that muscle with muscle memory that when I take this breath, this is what happens. I get calmer. I become more able to function and focus, um, you know, to be more ready to respond in an appropriate way versus not having the ability to manage my reactions. Yeah. So, I become able to respond to a situation rather than react to it. Nice, nice. And yeah, I remember reading in Altered Traits, which is the that great book about the, you know, outline the science of meditation and trying to differentiate between the good science and the and the shabby science around meditation and they found that yeah, the, they they scanned the brains of very experienced meditators and they found that the amygdala was just in a totally different state than those who had not done the practice. And the other encouraging thing too, for those who even are just trying to start out a practice is they found that even for someone who's never meditated before, if you do 10 minutes of mindfulness meditation, or I would imagine just like the, the breathing, the, the 15 count breathing that you describe, you do temporarily, you get a state change in that way. So like you said, you won't be less likely to snap at the grocery store clerk or or freak out and, and, well, and, and encounter road rage in yourself so yeah i i love that and so you and, so go ahead sorry oh and, and carrying that over further you know i mean arousal is super important in sports mm-hmm. and we need that optimal level of arousal to get into what you know people refer to as that state of flow yeah and and if we're too relaxed we don't really care but the tendency I see more often with athletes is they get overly amplified yeah. and they become reactive. And so they step out of flow and they're not able to respond and they become reactive. And that's when things get sloppy. Mm-hmm. Um, when they can even use that breath in the midst of a competition to bring themselves back into a readiness state, then they are responsive to what's happening on the field or on the court or on the course versus getting reactive to it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And that was a huge shift for me too. It was pregame. I used to do loud rap music and amping myself up. And I finally found that I was just, I was already nervous and that was just kind of taking me further in the wrong direction until finally I knew I figured out that for me, because I was kind of an overthinking, um, very intense, I had a very intense mind state pregame that just sitting quietly and meditating and visualizing and reading over the scouting report was a better method for me. And then, yeah, in the game, it's such a direct thing when you're sitting on the meditation chair or cushion and your mind spins out and wanders into what you're going to do later this evening or um, you've experienced negative emotions and just the ability to come back to your object of awareness. It translates directly to when you're on the court or the field of the course, like you say, and you start to get upset with the referee or you feel like the coach isn't playing you enough or you're worried because you missed your first three shots that you cannot come back to the next play or your feet on the floor. And it's it, the skill translates beautifully. So that's really great. So before we move on, you, you use these, like you said, you meditate twice a day and then you use these short breathing methods throughout the day. Is that, I'm just curious because I've heard of other people using that and I've, I've, I've seen the, I can understand the wisdom in that. I haven't been able to implement that on my on my own. Do you have like a trigger for when you do that? I've heard people say when they sit down at their desk, they do a few breaths, or is it just when you feel yourself um, needing to, to do the 15 count breaths? What's your strategy for getting those kind of shorter practices in throughout the day? 
um, I will always start my day when I sit down at my desk or sit down in my chair or you know, whatever the start of my, my day with clients is. Mm. I will start my day with five of those breaths. Mm. Um, I will try and take one or two between clients um, or between activities. Mm. Um, you know, because it, it's not something that takes any time and I can do it, you know, easily while I'm doing, and not that I'm, I want people distracted doing multiple things, but you know, I can sit down, grab a drink of water and take one of those breaths while I'm shifting between say a teaching state and then seeing a client individually. Mm. Um, so I think building that in as much as possible is a really great thing to do. Um, because it's it's easy and it, it doesn't require a big dedication of time. Yeah. And when we do that, what begins to happen and what I always want with people is that they so you know, we talked about the team as a whole and building trust, but with individual athletes, what I'm always looking for is self awareness. Hmm. And there are tools that I will use for every athlete, but I will use them in different ways. So I think every athlete has to have a pre-game step strategy, a mm -hmm. pre-game ritual. That's it's critical. Yeah. But what that's like for you versus somebody who maybe is more reserved and quiet, maybe even a little bit shy, you know, to get them into a little bit more heightened state to make them a little bit more hungry might be more important than it is for somebody who is super analytical and in their brain and you know obsessing about the competition, I'm going to want to get them more just into their body and settled. Hmm. And I'm going to use, you know, but it's, they're both going to have their pregame pre ritual, but it's going to be very different based on the personality and how the individual functions. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, that's all. I totally agree with that. And there's not a cookie cutter method for pregame. I think it's more of an art. And so, yeah, that's really great. What's a, what's an especially common hang-up or problem that you see when you're working with teams? Is there something that stands out to you of um, something that you see repetitively across teams that you have to address? And then what do you, if there is something like that, how do you generally address that? I think there are, there are two things that I see. And, and this is usually when teams are in transition, um, which is often times when I'm brought in for a team is when they're going through a big transition. So for example, when there's a coaching change or when there's a significant number of the team that's changing hmm. um, because you know, I'm brought in to try and help create a connection among people that allows for optimal performance. And so that becomes most difficult at times of transition. Hmm. Um, but there are a couple things I see. One is that there is not a, vulnerab a vulnerability-based trust with people. So people are very self-protective and they bring part of whatever's going on to the situation, but they may be holding back. And you, you talked about sort of there are unresolved resentments or there's unresolved mistrust. Um, and those are things that are really common. And the, the, the challenge there is that many athletes struggle with anxiety. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that I have found over time is that there are a lot of athletes, and I would say the majority of the athletes that I've worked with over time have some underlying stress or post-traumatic stress sort of situation. Hmm. And whether that's from, you know, the, the types of things that we might think of globally in terms of creating a, a a stress response, you know, an accident or an injury or those kinds of things. Those are sometimes there. Sometimes it's individuals' backgrounds and sometimes it's, you know, being traumatized playing a sport, trying to live up to, you know, a parent that was a very accomplished athlete or, you know, coaching expectations. But all of those things gen generally tend to lead to sort of a heightened level of anxiety. Yeah. And that feeds within a team. Anxiety feeds on itself. And it's, to a certain extent, contagious. Hmm. And so those are the things. It's, it's creating the trust where people can bring their anxiety openly. You know, not, to, not that they're going to share their anxiety and try and bring everybody else's anxiety, but that people can have trust within the team where they can say, you know, I'm not feeling super confident about this. Can you help me work on this? 
or I think you've really got this dialed in. What are you doing that makes you able to do this so that people begin to rely on and trust one another to support each other in their growth and development? Nice. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, it's interesting that you found, well, it's interesting for me that you say that so many of the athletes that you work with struggle with anxiety. And when I was going through my acute battles with with anxiety, I really thought it was just kind of my own issue and that I was somehow flawed for having it. And I think mine was probably on the extreme side for, for one season, but having started to speak about this to the players I coach or now to the players that I work with, seeing how common it is, it is, you know, I think it's becoming more accepted and you've got players like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and some other players kind of speaking out about their own issues, which I think is removing some of the stigma, but it's surprising to me to see how many people can relate to what I went through. And so, so yeah, let's, let's try to, maybe I can frame some of these questions around my own experience. So for me, I was struggling in that I was underperforming and I was on full scholarship. And so that, that dynamic really affected me and that I really felt like a wasted scholarship and I felt that I was seen by my coaches and teammates as a wasted scholarship even though I was liked by my teammates and as a person by my coaches I just felt like kind of an imposter on the team and that caused me to put ample you know more stress on myself or more pressure uh, on myself and um, I think it kind of spiraled into this place where all of a sudden I couldn't shoot free throws anymore so I guess you could take this either at the team level or maybe if you're working with an individual who's going through something like I'm going through, where would you begin with an athlete like that who's struggling with anxiety and or depression? Um, you know, from the very beginning, I would, I would start with the breath work and the mindfulness work. I'd also, I also do a lot of education. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell my clients, you can ask me any question about why we're doing what we're doing. It's, you know, to me, it's not, it's not something that's a big mystery or a big secret. Um, Our brains are wired for the negative. Mm -hmm. That's how we've survived and evolved. Um, You know, it's self-preservation. And people who put themselves in situations where they are willing to compete you know, are putting themselves kind of in the limelight. And what I find over and over again is that athletes that that struggle with depression and anxiety very, very often are extremely self-critical. So I'll try and get underneath, you know, what is the self-criticism? What is the underlying issue? And you talked about the imposter syndrome or, you know, I don't really deserve to be here. Um, yeah. I'm not as good as these other players. Um you know, I'm good enough, but I, I, you know, I don't deserve to be playing in a Pac-12 team, whatever it is. And it's beginning to un- unpack what those things are and beginning to use the breath work and also self-talk to begin to create a different story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as human beings, we believe what we think and we believe what we say. And we all language stories about who we are in our lives constantly. Hmm. And, you know, honestly, probably about 80% of what we believe is a story of fiction. Yeah. And if we're, if we're going to create the story, why not create it to be what we want it to be? Hmm. And so I really do. I work with athletes both when they're depressed and when they're anxious on looking at what's the story that you're creating and is that story true? You know, I often say our thoughts are not facts. Our feelings are not facts. Hmm. But if you're going to tell a story that involves those those storylines or those chosen facts, then let's choose some that are supportive to where you want to go. And let's begin to change that narrative. Hmm. And I'm not a, I'm not a big believer in the pie in the sky I am awesome. That hmm. to me, that's not useful. What I would rather have is people begin to use self-talk. Like, I am resilient. Hmm. I am a problem solver. I have the ability to. 
I am a kind person. You know, it's it's not about I'm the biggest, best, strongest, fastest. I want to really begin to use words and to create storylines that support the person as a whole so that they can have peak performances from sort of a stable groundwork of understanding that they're good enough. Hmm. There's always room to be better, but we're always good enough. And, you know, I... I I always ask people to do your best, but you have to recognize that your best is different on any given day. You know, mm-hmm. we we have PRs for a reason, and we're yeah. all we're always striving to better our PR. But PRs happen when circumstances are ideal. We're well rested. We're well trained. The wind is at our back. Whatever it is, everything comes together in a harmonious moment to make that happen. And part of that, part of what comes together is all of the work to get there. Yeah. But there's a reason why we can't do it every day. Because our best is going to be different on every day. And what becomes important is that we recognize that we bring everything that we have that's our best on a given day, knowing that that series of bests will lead to the PRs. Yeah. And paradoxically, those peak performances and flow states seem to come when you're not forcing it or trying too hard to make it happen. It's like, at least for me, and I've, you know, a lot of other athletes have spoken and written about this too. It's, it's the moments when you're relaxed, you're calm, you're confident, and it's sort of happening on its own in a weird way. It's not when you're, like you said, you know, berating yourself for not being good enough. That's certainly when it doesn't happen. Um, and so, yeah. Which brings back to the idea that, We've got to be in a state of play, in a state of fun. Yeah. This is why children are so amazing at being in the moment. Mm-hmm. Because everything, life, learning, growing, climbing, whatever it is, is all about the act of being in the minute doing it. And they're not, they're not caught up in self-consciousness. And that's one of the things that anxiety does is it makes us highly self-conscious. And when we're self-conscious, we tend to become pretty clumsy. Yeah. 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 That's totally agree with that. Um, So you, you, you encourage one question that I have that I'm still working through is you and I both agree that how powerful mindfulness meditation can be. And, but we're also, you know, in this era where there's so much, quick entertainment at our fingertips and we're training ourselves through our smartphones to want quick hits of entertainment and pleasure and meditation is kind of the opposite you're removing all stimuli and you're just sitting in silence focusing on your breath and it could be hard and it was hard for me to to really grasp the practice for the first year or so I was you know flowing in and out and I was dealing with (laughs) um, some of the you know, I'd meditate well and get really excited about it. And then I'd fall off and criticize myself for not being able to stick to it. What do you suggest for young athletes or anyone for that matter, who are having trouble, they want to practice, they believe in it, but they're having trouble sticking to a consistent practice? Um, that's a really great question. Um, because what I tell people is to be compassionate, to be gentle. Hmm. None of us, and this is especially true with athletes, you know, I'll, I'll ask somebody, you know, the first time that you shot a free throw, did you make it? <laughs> the second, the third time, how many free throws before you could hit two in a row? Mm. How many times did you try before you actually succeeded once? Mm. This is no different. We're creating a new response. We're creating new muscle memory mm. and it takes repetition. And you know, you don't even think about it, especially, you know, for those of us that start with a particular sport when we're very young and stay with it for a long time. You know, I think back on how many hundreds of thousands of touches on the ball I had over, you know, 30 plus years of playing. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal number. And things that became just a part of what I did were things that I had to learn to do at some point. And so I always remind people that, you know, whether it's the first time that you swung a bat at a ball, 
you know, they put it on a T so that it didn't move, right? And even yeah. then you can hit it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, so I ask people to get into that child's mind. Mm. That, that, that it's okay not to do it right or perfectly. Mm. And where as competitors, we get caught up that we're supposed to be perfect. And none of us is perfect. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a practice. There's a reason we call it a practice. It's something that we just have to keep doing. And, you know, I am not, I will tell people if, if what it takes for you is to set a timer for a minute and breath for a minute, do a minute. Mm. When you get that down, go to two minutes. Mm -hmm. And if there's a day that you just can't get it dialed in, take a deep breath and say, I'm going to try again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really where courage comes from. Courage is not about an absence of, of fear or anxiety. Courage is the willingness to continue to try even when you're not doing well. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's great advice. Um, and yeah, something that, yeah, it's that kind of hard paradox that I think athletes are in one way very, they are great candidates for a meditation practice because they understand what, you know, sacrifice and increment, incremental improvement looks like. And so they get it. But in another sense, and I fell into this trap for sure, it's like you said, is the perfectionism and the frustration and the competitive attitude that um, when you try to bring that to the meditation chair, it can be really discouraging. So I love what you said about that, cultivating compassion for yourself and understanding that it takes time and that can give you some more sustainability. Well, great. Well, do you have time for a few rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay, cool. Um, okay, how I, I, I plagiarized this question from the Tim Ferriss podcast, so this is my citation. <laughs> how, is, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? Oh my gosh, a favorite failure? I've had so many. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I will tell you, I think that probably the, the biggest failure that in turn was a great success in my life was my first career choice. Mm. You know, I went into something because I didn't know what else I wanted to do and business seemed like a good thing to study. And, you know, it, there were lots of jobs, you know, in the eighties in business. And that was probably my biggest failure, but it set me up to be really dedicated to the thing that I found and discovered that was truly about who I wanted to be and what was important to me. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm sure those skills translated in helping you deliver and reach people with, with the, the beautiful message that you're teaching. So that, that was great. Okay, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing before your college athletic career, something that might have saved you some trouble or helped you enjoy your sport more, what would it have been? I think the advice that I would give myself at any stage of my life about almost anything is that what you're doing in the moment needs to be joyful. Mm. And at the end of the day, whether I did all of the training I was supposed to do or did more of it because, you know, I had to push that much harder. You know, there's a reason why sometimes we also need days off. Mm. And again, it, it kind of comes back to that. Remember that we're here to play. Mm. And, I, and I, I use that word, but really I don't use it in a lighthearted or disrespectful way. I think play is precious. Mm. Play connects us and binds us together as human beings. Play is what makes good teams great mm. you know coming back to the original discussion we had of the milwaukee bucks they play well together as a team they have incredible chemistry mm. and part of that chemistry comes because they're playful with each other mm. yeah that's beautiful okay well thank you renee that's been really 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 great to get you 
um, on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. It's, it's really great. And I, I know you're doing really, really important work. So keep it up. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on, Billy. Um, it's been a delight. And thank you. I am, you know, I'm one of those fortunate people. I get to do something that I love every day. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you and take care during these strange times. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll remain in touch to some extent. So thank you. Sounds great. Take care, Billy. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, Sunday Sauce. Every Sunday, I'll send out a small piece of content that's related to the topics I'm researching and exploring on this podcast. It could be a quote or an image or a short video or a piece of my own writing. Just something small and digestible that I think is worth looking at. I'll also announce when new content comes out, so it's really the best way to stay up to date with what I'm doing. To subscribe, you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash sauce. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter, and those links are in the show notes. Other ways to support the show include leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, sharing with friends and family, or posting on social media. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.